0: Well, this morning, as promised, is we are going through Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And what's going to happen this morning is with Genesis chapter, I'm going to preach Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to preach down through, well, kind of 21. I'm going to skip some verses in between and come back to them uh, at the after the first of the year. So the, on uh, January 13th, I'll be preaching on those. Then we're going to take a break for Advent. Advent's going to start next week with with things like peace and hope and love and joy, and we'll have the candles and we'll light the candles. We'll have the Advent devotional for you that you can kind of take Advent into your homes. And we're going to focus on the Christmas season. But this morning we focus on Genesis chapter 3. And as you've been walking with us in this journey where we have seen this creation, God's good creation, God's great and wonderful creation, we see him as he creates, he reflects and says, it is good, it is good. Day six, it is very good. He creates the Garden of Eden. And then one and two, the, the, the Garden is there. Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden. And then Genesis chapter three, we only get three chapters into the Bible and everything falls apart. Right? It didn't take long. God says, here you go. And we, we, as soon as we touch, we drop it. And I feel like God's like, this is why we can't have nice things. And so here we are. And it's interesting with this utopia, right? This idea of Eden is this idea of Eden is in all of our minds. And at some level, I think we're all chasing it to get back to that place. I think what we want is our own personal Edens. I just want life to get back to this utopian place where everything is right, nothing is wrong, everything is going according to plan. And as a community, as, as the world, we're looking back to getting back to, this, getting back to this utopian society. It's interesting. It feels like not just a place we're trying to go to, but a place that we have lost that we're trying to get back to. And I think that's true for both Christians and non-Christians have that sense. And I go, well, the the reason why you have that sense is because it's true. It has been something that's lost, and it's something we are trying to get back to. And we just think it's right around the corner, right? Oh, we're so close. As soon as this politician gets out of office, as soon as this politician takes office, as soon as this policy is removed, as soon as this policy is enacted, as soon as this conflict stops, as soon as this conflict starts and then is resolved, then, then we will be there. No. No. And what's weird, in this weird way, I think, is that we think, if everybody just did what I thought they should do, then we would finally return to this utopian society if every if every politician made the decisions i think they should make if every policy reflected the things i think should be happening if all of that was true and everybody in my family and everybody in my life my workforce if everybody in my country if everybody just did what i thought they should do we could return to this utopian society which i think well we might return to your utopian society but it's quite possible that your utopian society is somebody else's hell, right? And I think what you would realize in the end, it's yours too. And so here we are in this broken, fallen world. And so what God did is he, he created the Garden of Eden. In the middle of it, he put this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, don't eat of this tree. And the day that you do, you will die. And then Satan came along. Adam and Eve, as we saw last week, Adam and Eve were there and Satan came along. He said, did God say that? Is that what God really said? Oh, you're not going to die? No, 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 no. No, the reason why God said don't eat of that tree is because he knows. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like him. And your eyes will be opened and you'll know the difference between good and evil just like him. That's why he's doing it. And what we saw last week is Satan says, the reason why God says don't do this is one, because he's trying to limit you. And two, he's, he's lying to you. And three, he's withholding from you something greater. And you go, that's the same lie that Satan tells us today. God is, is just... You follow God? Like, seriously, this, this book, this, his, his, if, if you call it the Word of God, which what well, we do, but, but you know, sarcastic, if, if that's what you call that, it's just it's trying to limit you, hold you back, and God's withholding from you something greater. You go, the reason why Satan still tells that lie today is because that lie still works. And I think in his world, if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. And so he continues to tell the lie and so what we see last week was Eve. Eve sees of the fruit. She sees that it's good for food, right? Doesn't God want me to eat? God said wants me to eat. It's good for food. My heart wants it. Doesn't God want me to have the desires of my heart? And that it would make her wise. Three really good reasons of why she should eat of that fruit. And so she does. She says she takes it. She eats it. And then she gives it to her husband who's there who's been there the whole time. Adam did nothing. Adam just passively sat by while, while, while Eve, his wife, walked into sin and did nothing about it. And I submitted to you last week, I said, I think that Adam was experimenting with her. I wonder what's going to happen. Will she really die? And when she doesn't die, as he thinks she would die, he thinks maybe God is lying to me. Maybe Eve is right, maybe Satan is right, and so he eats too. And so they both eat, and then this is the first, we say the first sin. People think that sin is this idea of, I did the wrong thing when I should have done the right thing. And there is some of that. But I don't think that God is up in heaven just looking out on the world and going, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. I think that there is this idea of universal right and wrong, but I don't think that's God's purpose. I don't think God just set all of this up, this whole world up, to give us rules to abide by. But something other than that, I think sin is something deeper than that. I think sin at its core is this rejection of God and his authority. I'll be autonomous. I will decide what's best for me. I know what's best for me. I know me better than anybody else knows me. And so I'm going to be my own boss. And really, I think the sin here, and ultimately that's the core of all sin, is the one of rejection of God as a relationship and two of His authority. And it's interesting that when we come to Christ, what do we do? We say, Jesus, come into my life. Let's restore relationship and what? I submit to your rule. And so it's this reversal of what happens in the eating of the fruit, this rejection of God in the relationship and the, the throwing office of authority. Then when we come to Christ, the thing that we do is we, 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 we seek to restore that relationship through Christ and, and submit ourselves once again to the authority of God. And so both of these, they're throwing them off. Eve's was an active sin. Adam's was a passive sin. And God holds them both accountable the same. And then we get Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let me read that again. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so with this newfound freedom that has been promised to them, oh, you're going to be so free. You're not going to die. You're going to live. And your eyes will be open. They eat, their eyes are open. And the first thing they get to do with this newfound freedom, this new free life, is this this realization that they're naked. And with that realization, this also, I think, this, this parallel at the same time, thing that this realization, and I need to, I need to cover up, and so this idea, and I, and I don't think this was something physical, right? Like all of a sudden <laughs> they ate of the fruit. It was super high in calories, super high in fat. And then as soon as they ate that, their bodies just went out. Like they were just like, they gained instant weight. And all of a sudden they're like, look, at, I ate that fruit. And all of a sudden, look at this. I got a beer belly or whatever it would be. I, I, I've got, I got the love handles now. Now I'm ashamed and now I have to cover up. I, w- I would submit to you that they look physically the same as they did before, as they did after. I don't think there was a physical change in that sense of their outward appearance. But what happened was there was this self-awareness. All of a sudden, I'm aware. I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of how you view me. I'm aware of how I appear to you. And now I've got to cover up. And it's interesting, you know, they take the fig leaves. One of the suggestions is the figs would have been, the the, the leaves of the fig are one of the biggest uh, leaves in that area. And so that's one of the reasons I'm going to get as much coverage as possible. But this idea of that, I can't fix the inside, so I have to fix the outside. I can't cover up what is broken in here. And so I have to cover up what is broken out here. And you go, and that hasn't changed, right? We, 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 we can't fix the inside sometimes, and so we just fix the outward thing. And I hear this all the time. Go, oh, they look so put together. I didn't know all that was going on with them. They look so put together. I go, yeah, they're just... Some people are just better at sewing fig leaves than other people, right? Some of us are just more effective at it. And so what happens here is they, they, they sow these fig leaves. They begin to, to hide from one another. The intimacy is broken. Now this fig leaf is, is creating this, this, this barrier between them where they were fully known before. Between each other, they are no longer. There is something hidden. And whenever we actively hide things in our lives, what we do is we destroy intimacy. I mean, there's things that that nobody knows about you. There's things that, your spouse doesn't know about you, your best friends don't know about you, your children don't know about you, your parents don't know about you. And in those hidden places, you cannot experience intimacy. Why? Because you're you're hidden. And with the hiddenness comes things like isolation, feeling alone, and feeling like you're losing a like you you're, you're losing the battle, like you cannot win. And so what the hiddenness does is the hiddenness destroys intimacy. And so what we see here is what they, this this newfound freedom that they have with the fruit is that they gain self-awareness and they lose intimacy. Now, nobody said anything about that. God didn't say, don't eat of this fruit. And the day that you eat of this fruit, you're going to lose intimacy and gain self-awareness. He didn't say that. Satan didn't say that. It was death. And I go, yeah, you know why? Because often sin has what I would call unintended consequences. Sin almost always has unintended consequences. Nobody said anything about that. You're right, they didn't. I hear people like all the time. They say, "I I didn't mean to hurt anybody by that. And I go, yeah, no, I get that. But you did. Like I did that, and I, I thought that was just that was my thing. I didn't mean to hurt anybody about that, but yeah. But but you did. And here is the thing: sin almost always has unintended consequences. Uh, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine a while ago, and uh, he was telling me about a guy that he was working with, who in his twenties became ad- addicted to porn. And it wasn't like, as he would say. It wasn't the destructiveness, it wasn't like, it wasn't like like constant, like hours upon hours upon hours a day, but just, it was just enough. And he was addicted, and he was in his 20s, no big deal. At the time, it was mostly magazines, but then he got older, 20s, he became 30s, became 40s, moved from the magazine to the screen. And still, as he would say, decently manageable. No big deal. But the weird thing was that, like, as he, grow, as he grew older, uh, the women didn't, right? I mean, what, what he was looking at was not—they were, they weren't in their 40s and 50s. They were still in their 20s. And so then it started to have some effect. Because guess who didn't stay in their 20s? His wife. She had kids. Things changed. And so it created an issue there. And you go, that wasn't enough. What happened was his daughter became a teenager. And then she went off to college, and she was then in her 20s. And guess what? Not only was she in her 20s, but she had friends who were in their 20s. And they would come to their house And the thoughts that he would have about them would scare him to death. So much so that he began to distance himself. And so over time, he became emotionally disconnected from his daughter because of what was taking place in his mind terrified him. And I go, yeah. Sin always has unintended consequences. If you would have said, well, you're going to lose intimacy, you're going to gain self-awareness. That wasn't part of the deal, but it was. You just didn't know it. And so we see this here, that sin has these these unintended consequences. Now they're self-aware, and they're aware of their nakedness. And now they have this, I need to hide. They lose the intimacy, verse 8 and 9 and 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so they've eaten of the fruit. Their eyes are now open. They are aware of their nakedness. They sow they saw the, the fig leaves. They, they hide themselves from each other. And then the moment of accountability comes and they hear God walking in the garden. I think about a kid. Maybe you were as a kid and your parents were going to go out for the night and they said, while we're out, we want you to behave. Don't do anything dumb. Oh yeah, sure mom, dad, sure, not not a problem, not a problem, we got this. They go out, you do some dumb things, a window gets broken, and you think to yourself, mom and dad said not to do this, and you think about how can we fix this before mom and dad come home, and you realize You can't fix that before mom and dad comes home. And there's this anxiety that arises in you that thinks, oh my gosh, when they come home and they see this, they are going to lose it. But I'll tell you what, the anxiety you feel in that moment is nothing in comparison to when you hear that garage door go up because you're like, they're home, (laughs) they're home and the moment of accountability has descended upon us what we could only imagine 2 hours ago is about to take place in this moment and that's what i think about when i hear adam and eve in the garden were there and they, they hear they hear god and they hear him moving and now he has come and here's the thing right we want god to be a, a, a god of his word we want god to be a faithful god we want to know that when God says something to be true that it's going to be true, when he makes a promise, he's going to fulfill that promise. If he doesn't do that, we would say he you are not a faithful God and you cannot be trusted. And truth be told, we want that when the promise is a blessing. But when the promise is, "I'm going to hold you accountable for this," we're like, "Well, you don't have to follow through on everything, right?" I mean, just just we just want you to follow through on the the good stuff. But what's interesting with this is that if he doesn't come in this moment, hold them accountable, and if death is not the result of what took place, then guess what? Satan was telling the truth, and it was God who was really lying. The reason why God comes in this moment is because, once again, He's a faithful God who's going to carry out His promise. That's what I said. He's a faithful God who will always fulfill His word. And so He comes. And so they, they hide from God. Like, how do, you, how do you do this, right? I mean, the Almighty, I love this. He's coming. Shh. Let's just get down. Just gotta get down, maybe. Just maybe he'll forgot he made us. Like he'll be looking at the draft, and like, yeah, I do, I do love this creation. And maybe, like, in like a hundred thousand years from now, he'll go. Wait a minute! I created two other things, and I have not seen them in a while. Where have they been? <laughs> just get down. Don't say anything. Just be quiet. It'd be more comical if I didn't do this myself, right? If you didn't do this. We try to hide from God. Maybe if I don't read his word, then it's like he never said it. Maybe if I never go to church, I don't have to hear that guy tell me things I don't want to hear. Maybe if I don't spend time in Christian community with people who love me and will speak the truth and love to me, then maybe I don't have to hear about that. And so we hide. You can hide from other people, but we, we, we cannot hide from God. It's interesting here, right? I hid because I was naked. You know I tell Adam? Adam, but you're not, right? You have, you have a fig leaf. You know what that tells me? Is that the fig leaf worked with Eve, but it did not work with God. That in the presence of God, he still felt naked, even though he was clothed. He might have been hidden from Eve, but as soon as God shows up, he's like, I'm, I'm naked. Now, this is interesting because, you know, we, have the, we, we believe in this God who knows everything. He knows everything about us, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our actions. All of the things we do in the darkness are like light to him is what it tells us. Even the things we do in the hidden places are not hidden to him. And that's problematic because now we have a God who's hands-on. It's one of the things, like, as, as we live right now in a secular world, a secular world is not an atheistic world. A secular world does not believe, for the most part, doesn't believe that there is no God. A secular world believes that God, although or the gods, probably exists. But we can't know that for certain. And since we can't know that for certain, then the God or the gods should not be a part of the discussion. He's a non-factor. Because we can't know him for certain, then he becomes a non-factor. Non-factors in our laws, non-factors in our schools, non-factors in our relationships. It's just, it's just leave him out of it. But I go, if there's one thing that God is not, it's not a non-factor. If he doesn't exist, then he's a non-factor. But if he exists, there's the one thing he cannot be, which is irrelevant or a non-factor. And I go, and here, it has major implications. And the major implications is that you have a God who knows you, who knows everything about you, from which you cannot hide. And so we see this. And what we see here is what he says is so. I hid, and notice how Adam doesn't answer the question. His question is, Adam, where are you? And it says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I and I hid myself. The simple answer was, I'm here. But he goes into explanation mode. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hey. Adam, where are you? Oh well okay, hold. okay, so okay, so what happened was, what happened was I, I was naked, and so um, I was afraid when I heard you, and so I, I hid myself. didn't answer the question, Adam. And so what we see here is now Adam has experienced shame. I hid myself in fear, I was afraid. Shame and fear, something he never had experienced in the presence of God. I don't think it's something he had experienced at all, let alone, but now in the presence of God experiences shame and fear. This new wonderful world of freedom and expression and this wonderful world that God was withholding and keeping you back from is a world in which now you have lost intimacy, you have gained self-awareness, and you're experiencing shame and fear and shame and fear are two things that will if left unchecked will dominate you shame is the idea that you don't measure up and you know it fear is this idea that somebody else is going to figure that out at best i'll just be a fraud most of my life and nobody will figure out that i don't measure up but the fear is what happens when they realize that i don't the fear is experienced when what happens when people realize i'm not a good i'm not a good spouse I'm not a good kid. I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good worker. Shame and fear. I go, yeah, you know what? Nobody said anything about that. I go, yeah, you know why? Because sin has unintended consequences. At this point, maybe death would have looked good. Death may have looked better than the shame and the fear that they're experiencing. So he says, Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Verse 12 and 13, moving on. He says, verse 11, he said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave, me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And once again, God asked Adam a question. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I said don't eat of that tree? Now, once again, we know that God, God is not, he's not looking for information, right? He's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? He knows what's going on. He's not dumb. He's all-knowing God. And Adam doesn't answer the question. Once again, right? This is what guilty people do. They don't answer the question, right? Who told you you were naked? <laughs> did you eat? Did somebody somebody took a swipe at the frosting on the cake? Was that you? The f- frosting? It was that wait? Wait, where where was the cake? What's this cake? Where's the cake? There's, the cake was in the kitchen. Oh, so. So did I take a swipe at the frosting of the cake? Yes, yes. All you've done is just restated the question I just asked you. That's what I'm asking. The one in the kitchen, yes. Ah, oh, you're guilty, right? You, you can't. It's a simple yes or no answer. You're guilty. And then what does he do? It's me, God. It was the woman. And need I remind you, God. It's the woman that you gave to me as a helper and she does not seem to be helping me in this moment, God. And so whose fault is this? Well, it's Eve's fault and it's God. This is your fault. In fact, I didn't even I didn't even take it off the tree. I didn't even do that. She did that and then she gave it to me. To eat. And I thought, well, here is my helper given to me by the Lord God, and I sh- I sh- she's helping me. I didn't know. Eve? It was the serpent. It was, it, was, it was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Now, he addresses, we're not going to look at it this one, he addresses the serpent, but he doesn't ask the serpent what he's done. Did you know why? Because the serpent did exactly what the serpent always does. I expected this out of the serpent. This was the expectation and the standard for the serpent. So he doesn't even, he, he's even—he's going to hold him accountable, and there's going to be some consequences. But it's not this. And when Satan, so you're in on this too. He's like, I already knew that. So what Satan does is he deceives, and then and then Eve eats. And Eve gets to Adam, and then God calls on Adam. This really, this, interestingly, there was reverse order. Calls on Adam, and then what does Adam do? Adam just shifts the blame. That's what guilty people do. Got to shift that blame. Blame coming my way, deflect it. And here's the crazy thing: is that the the mo- I find the most guilty people are the best at deflecting blame. Was it me? Well, not my fault. I'm a, I, am, I am a victim of my circumstances, God. You put me here in this garden, with this tree, with this woman, with this fruit. Not my fault. You know, this idea of, of blame shifting, what it does is it, it creates in us a sense of defense of defense. We have to defend ourselves. And then what it also does is it plays ourselves at the victim. And we refuse to take ownership of our own brokenness and sin. One of the things I love about the story of David and Bathsheba, now that becomes like, you know, David was King David, the man after God's own heart, but then there's this story of David and Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, he's King David at this time. His men are out fighting a war. From his palace, he can see this woman, Bathsheba, bathing. She's married to a man named Uriah. And David says, I want her. Bring her to me. And they do. And he sleeps with Bathsheba. And she comes back and says, I'm pregnant. And so David pulls Uriah off the line. And and says, "Hey, just come and, and and be with your wife, so he could so he could continue this lie." And Uriah says, "I refuse." He goes, "Well, just kind of just spend one night with your wife." Tries to get him drunk. Go spend some night with your with, with your wife. He sleeps outside. He says, "I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sleep with my wife." While my men are out on the field, and he's in that way, Uriah shows more integrity than King David, the man the man after God's own heart. And so, once he realizes he cannot hide this. And this way, he sends Uriah to the front lines where he is killed in war. And then David takes Bathsheba as his own. God sends the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan comes to David and says, I'm going to make a long story short on this part, but he just says, David, you're, you're guilty. God knows it. I know it. You're guilty. And what we see is then this the Psalm fifty one flows out of this. And Psalm fifty one, if you want to read it, it's beautiful, but this is this is his confession of David to God. And what the things that he says in there, he goes, God, I've sinned against you and you alone. Like I he's, you are you are righteous in your judgments against me. He even says, "Don't hold this against Israel. I'm the king. Don't take out this on Israel. This is my deal." And what I and I, the reason why I, I love I love King David in this moment is because you know our sin won't define us. What we do with our sin defines us. And in this moment, what, what David does with his sin, he goes, "I own it. That's me." Notice that when 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 Nathan comes to to David, the prophet Nathan, he doesn't say, "Well, it's not my fault. She was bathing on the roof." And she knows where the palace is. She knows that I can see. All this is probably true. It's not my fault, God. It's what kings do. Kings have done this for history, throughout history. And they'll, they'll, they'll continue to do it after David. David owns it. He refuses to, to, to shift the blame. And so what we see here is that sin... The unintended consequences of sin here are that they gain self-awareness, they lose intimacy, fear and shame are experienced, and blame is shifted. Then we're going to jump past the consequences. I'm going to come back to that on the 13th of January. But then in verse 20, the man called his wife named Eve, it's interesting. We've been calling her Eve up until this point, right? Just to, as for name purposes. But she actually doesn't get the name until after the fall. The, man's, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Garments of skin and clothed them. One of the first great acts of grace in the Bible, I think. In other words, it's right that you're clothed now. It's interesting that God does not say, you know, the leaves. hey, those, that's just in your imagination. The, f- the, the fear and the shame that you feel that you, you're needing to hide, that's all in your head. Just get out of your own head and just be confident enough to return to this place. But the fact that he says, I'm going to clothe you, tells me that it's right that they're clothed. This new experience of shame and fear, this new, this new understanding of blame shifting and guilt dodging of self-awareness, this isn't going to go away if you return to being in the buff. And so I'm going to clothe you. First great act of grace, I think, in the Bible. And so what do we see? This cosmic rejection of God by Adam and Eve, and what do we see? We see the grace of God. It's interesting, right? That God comes to them in the garden. He knows what they've done. But what does he do? He comes to them. And it's interesting because we just go, yeah, of course. Just, yeah, I mean, it's what he does. It's like he was, he was, he was, he was coming to, to say what's up, like he always would do. You go, yeah, but he knows in this moment when he comes to them that they have already rejected him. And yet he comes to them. We go, of course. But, now, but me, a lot of me just go, but not of course. He doesn't have to do that. There's nothing that requires him to do that outside of his own character. He's not submitting to some sort of greater authority in, in the universe. He says, well, now I've got to go down there. He could have done whatever he wanted to in that moment. He could have said from his heavenly abode, you want to rebel against me? I will wipe you out and you will never hear from me again probably more likely is what you would see is that you would see Adam and Eve. You come up here right now. You get up here right now. You come into my throne room. You come into my turf. You come up to me because I'm going to hold you accountable. What do we see? we see? We see God the Father. We see him coming down to him to them. We see that I think that the Trinity in, in this, and then in, in coming, coming to, coming to, and then doing what? Calling out. So he comes to them, then he calls out to them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? You know what's beautiful about those questions is that those are questions that are eliciting a confession. Those are not questions necessarily of condemnation. Those are questions of, of God saying, I want you to confess. Not I have come here to condemn you. T- see, I think because if there is questions of condemnation, if there are questions of condemnation, they would be like, how dare you? Who do you think that you are? Why did you do such a dumb thing? These are Where are you? Did you eat of that tree? Who told you you were naked? So he comes to them. He calls out to them for confession and not for condemnation. Although there are going to be some consequences. There's the unintended and the intended ones we'll see in about a month or so. So he comes to them. He calls out to them. And then he covers them. I think all of that is an act of grace. And we see this in the first three chapters of the Bible. And the beautiful thing is this this is what God does. I mean, anything about it, this idea like we are celebrating Christmas, right? The Christmas season is officially upon us, we are going to start Advent next week hope, peace, love, and joy. But what do we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate that God has come to us as a baby in the manger. But that he has stepped down out of heaven to come to us. And then what is his ministry calling out to us like a good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they know that it's me. I've come down from heaven to call out to my people. Not one of condemnation, but one of confession. What have you done? Did you eat of that tree? Where are you? Not questions of information, but questions of confession. And that what we see is then, not only does Jesus come down to us, call out to us, but then we see through the cross that he covers us. And how does he cover us? With, with, with a fig leaf? No, no, no. With, with even an animal skin? No, no, no. But this covering is a covering of his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. And what it tells us is then we are covered in his righteousness so that we can return to this Eden-like state in the presence of God without fear and without shame. And so as we prepare for Christmas, we celebrate exactly what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3, which God has come down called out for the purposes of covering. And so my, my prayer for you and for, for this Christmas is that that you would you would know and understand that God has come for you. And that he is calling out to you, whether you've been a Christian for you know 50 years or you're not a Christian, but that he's calling out to you. And his desire is that he would cover you and not with things that would perish, but something of eternity, his blood and his righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have come. We thank you that it's not just something that you did in the garden. It's not just something you did 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But it's something that you are doing today. You have come for us. You have come down to us. You have called out to us. Not necessarily for condemnation, but for confession. May we confess to you. May we not shift the blame to other people. May we not claim a victim of circumstances. An anomaly of happenstances. May we be like David, may we own it, may we May we not deflect it? And most importantly, Jesus, may we allow you to cover us. That you'd cover us in your blood, you'd cover us in your righteousness. That we don't have to hide anymore. That we can come once again into your presence, unafraid and unashamed with confidence because of what you've done for us. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.